the ad hoc measures maybe work in the meantime, but what we need is long-term integrated border management system is what is required in the long term. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Since fighting broke out in Sudan on April 15th this year, more than a million people have been displaced internally and internationally. Many of the borders across which Sudanese have fled are not functional borders. That is, there is no process to register or screen people who are entering a country. According to my guest today, non-functional porous borders are exacerbating an already dire humanitarian crisis. Margaret Munyani is a senior migration researcher at the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa. We kick off discussing why the African Union is focusing more heavily on border control and administration before having a longer conversation about what Sudan's refugee crisis tells us about African borders today. And today's episode is produced in part through the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York as part of a series of episodes featuring African expertise on peace and security issues in Africa. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to access other episodes that are part of the series. Now here is my conversation with Margaret Munyani of the Institute for Security Studies. Can I have you explain what we know thus far about the scope of the displacement and refugee crisis in Sudan since fighting broke out in April? Thank you so much. First, I want to express my gratitude for the opportunity to participate in your program and also contribute to this important conversation at such an opportune moment. Because just yesterday, there was the celebration of the African Union Border Day. That is June the 7th. The African Union Border Day. What is that? I had not heard of this holiday. It was instituted in 2011. It was informed by the fact that the borders we have on the continent right now were established by the colonial powers. They're kind of imposed as a part of decolonization and then in the interest of preventing conflict. Because a lot of conflicts on the continent actually are situated at the border zones or in the border areas. So African states then promised to respect the borders, respect them as they are, and not fight over them. 
So they have been uh, commemorating this day just to remind member states to stick to the respecting the integrity of borders of their neighbors. While we may not agree because many of these borders have closed split families, split communities, and so there have been tensions over the years. So it's just a reminder for member states that they need to respect the intangibility of the borders as they are. So the timing of our conversation is opportune with Border Day having been commemorated. We are also speaking now within like the sixth week of this devastating civil war in Sudan, Mm -hmm. which is causing one of the largest refugee crises in Africa and in the world, frankly, at the moment. What do we know thus far about this refugee crisis, both in terms of where people are fleeing, who is fleeing, and what the broader migration trends have been since the outbreak of this conflict? So over these seven weeks, there has been massive displacement internally and cross-border, and as well as loss of lives and also injuries. As of 29th May, that is a week ago, IOM displacement tracking matrix records that 1.2 million individuals, that is about 242,000 households, have been internally displaced by the conflict. But the Federal Ministry of Health says as of June 3rd, there has been 780 deaths and some 5,800 injuries. So a majority are internally displaced and are seeking refugee in uh, West Darfur, White Nile, River Nile, the northern states as well. And these are all regions and states in Sudan. Yes. So the internal displacement is not just about the Sudanese. It also includes non-Sudanese who have fled their homes and also relocated to safer locations. So according to the Sudanese Commission for Refugees, the estimate that 150,000 refugees have now independently fled Khartoum to relocate in uh, other parts in the neighboring countries. Ah, so people who fled to Khartoum, which was considered safe and stable up until April 15th, presumably that included a number of South Sudanese, um, they are now just being displaced internally as well, like like a layer upon a layer of displacement. Exactly. For now, I'm just focusing on internal and external. We'll see how other displacements are happening as well. So when it comes to children, because this is very critical, UNICEF also says some 13.6 million children in Sudan are in desperate need of humanitarian aid. So like 618,000. In fact, of those 13.6, we have 458,000 that are internally displaced. Those are kids, 458,000. So children aren't going to school and some have crossed borders and accompanied or with parents. So these are estimates. Let's keep in mind that this is a volatile situation. And so having accurate data can be challenging. So that's why we stick to the estimates, but we also stick to some international organizations that are legitimate, UNICEF, IOM, and the rest, and UNHCR. So what do we know about external displacement, people seeking refuge in other countries? You said 1.2 million have been displaced internally, over 400,000 of whom are children. What do we know about refugee out? migration from Sudan? So a majority are moving to the neighboring countries, including Chad. Chad estimated that 
up to now, there is over 60,000 that have relocated to Chad. And then we have Egypt, we have South Sudan, and we have the Central Africa Republic, where quite a good number of these asylum seekers are moving to the immediate neighboring countries. Of course, there could be a, a negligible number that is flying out because now moving from the conflict zones has become very expensive. And so the majority are just moving to the neighboring countries like Chad, according to the Mist Migration Center. It estimates them at 60,000, those ones that have fled to Chad. Now to Egypt, we are at 40,000 and more. Central African Republic is the one that is having the least about 6,000. Let me ask you about Chad and Egypt specifically, because in terms of sheer numbers of people, these are the top two destinations for fleeing Sudanese. But these are also very different countries in terms of both the strength of their government institutions and state capacity, with Egypt having a much relatively stronger state capacity than Chad. So I wanted to ask you, what are we seeing at those two borders? Starting with Egypt, how is Egypt handling this mass migration? Actually, there have been reports that Egypt hasn't been very welcoming to the refugees. In the last month, there were reports that they are returning them at the border, refusing them entry. So they're not really returning them, putting them on vehicles and taking them back to Khartoum, but simply just refusing them entry, which is, of course, against the international legal instruments as it is. Chad, because of the porous borders, they have no control. The system is non-existent to a large extent. So the people are just crossing however they want. But UNHCR and other humanitarian organizations have tried to be at the border to be able to help these individuals, uh, track them, give them shelters. Because it was actually reported in Chad, they were sleeping under the trees right at the border, you know, just in open air. This is really very dehumanizing. And so UNHCR and other partners had to come on board and also provide protection, provide immediate needs to the people who are stuck at the borders. So whereas the border to Egypt is non-porous, the Egyptian mm-hmm. authorities are not being terribly welcoming, but the border to Chad is fluid and, and porous, and so people are just crossing wherever they can. And you, you, in your research, have identified that a major problem, particularly along this Sudan-Chad border, is identifying and tracking displaced people who have crossed the border and need help. What is the nature of that problem and why is it causing such challenges, both humanitarian and also potentially political and security challenges? So the issue of, and can we say porous, fluid, non-existent or weak border uh, system is actually very detrimental to the displaced. In what ways? Because a border has its function. One of the functions is, of course, to save those who are getting in and getting out so that they can decipher the desirable from the non-desirable. But when that mechanism is not in place, it means the desirable and the non-desirable can easily cross the borders. And in the case of Chad, and knowing that the issues around Janjaweed, you know, rebel groups like those ones, and the smuggling, and we have to understand one thing about this region, not just Sudan, Chad, but in the whole, smuggling and human trafficking is a big problem. And while it's a big 
problem legally as per international instruments, as per those of us who are analyzing the situation. But it's not a problem to those who want to move because smugglers are seen as saviors. So when, in fact, people look at them as saviors in what way? They can help them cross borders. Like in this case, the government is upset. So they need to cross borders and go to better, more even go beyond Chad, go beyond Egypt. So these smugglers come in handy. But we know they are only saviors to adults or those who are interested in, in, in securing the services. But imagine children who will be hijacked at the borders with these entities. And some that have been, today I was just having an, an interview where you realize that they're even kidnapped at the borders and their body parts trafficked. So if borders are not effective in the sense that there are no rules, there are no regulations, there's no system, there's no manpower, there's no physical structure like a border post where people can go through, have their documents checked, or if they don't have, then they can be identified. And remember that the international law also prohibits persecution of the victims of trafficking. And smugglers are aware of this. And so what do they do when they are caught at the border? They are likely to pass as victims. And we saw that in like the early 2000s in the Darfur genocide in which, you know, the Janjaweed would very much cross the border into Chad and attack displaced populations there as well. Are you seeing thus far in like the six, seven weeks of this conflict evidence of cross-border attacks that are owing to the fact that Chad has no real border control mechanisms? Of course, there has been a spillover effects not just in Chad, but also Central Africa, there are also the smugglers. And so Janjaweed, to some extent in the last seven weeks, has been having what I can say a field day because there was nothing in place. What we see is ad hoc. UNHCR coming on board, IOM, and the government is completely not on board. And so it is now left in the hands of international uh, humanitarian organizations. And you know the mandate of this organization can just go as far. They cannot now impose statehood. They cannot provide the kind of security. They don't have that responsibility of sovereignty as states should uphold. They can just provide food, immediate needs. And so, yes, in the immediate borders where they're crossing from Sudan to Chad, there has been some spillover in those places. It has been reported in the media recently. And you also mentioned that there is layers of displacement, that those who were already displaced are being displaced a second or a third time. But there is also those that what we are calling involuntary immobility, that those people who want to move, but they can't. They might need to leave, but are constrained or unable to do so because they do not have the resources and the price of traveling has become way too much. So it's become one of those groups that is really neglected in this whole debate because like questions revolve around where are people moving to? But well, we are not talking about these people who are unable to move because of these circumstances. They are just unable to move. Then we have people who are being internally displaced for the first time, not the second time, and it's on a large scale. And then we have the existing IDPs that we had spoken about. Now, we also have to think about the Sudanese refugees outside of Sudan who were already there in Chad, who were already there in CAR, who were already in Egypt. And they were hoping that the situation back home will calm so that they come back. 
But now we see seven weeks. So what is happening to, to these ones that were already outside? Then it means the prospects of safe return and reintegration also remain uh, bleak in this case. One last one that I want to mention is uh, now the onward movement of Sudanese who are already abroad. Now that the situation back at home isn't allowing for safe return and reintegration, then they're likely to start now thinking about potential of onward movement to other countries, maybe to the southern part of Africa, maybe to Europe. And are we seeing that yet? I mean, that was certainly what we saw in Syria, um, which is by population a a smaller country than Sudan, but was a a wealthier population than Sudan. You know, you saw that first movement of Syrians to Turkey and then onward to Europe in, in really tremendous numbers. Do you expect that same onward trajectory from Sudanese who have, say, made it to Egypt? Do you expect just large numbers of Sudanese in the coming weeks or months to want to go to Europe? And if so, like what would that route look like? Actually, there is a high prospect. I might not say the numbers would be larger or not because onward movement is dependent on resources, on one's resources. Right now, they're getting that immediate care from the international organization. So, And the conflict is just seven weeks, which is too long to fight. But probably those who do not have resources are hoping that something will come up, the international community will come on board, and then there will be some kind of safe return. They will go back to their homes and restart their lives. But if it persists, remember the Mixed uh, Migration Center has a very good research on this, which shows that among the intercepted individuals or persons from Africa at the Libyan border, actually Sudanese, and also among the top 20 nationalities living in Italy are Sudanese. So what does that speak to? That these Sudanese, there is quite a bit of networks already in the northern part of Africa and Europe. So because people move in Africa, that is a common thing, they always are dependent on social networks. So if we already have them as top 20 nationalities in Italy, top 20 that are being intercepted at the Libyan border, heading towards Italy, it means that there is already history of them moving towards that. So it won't be hard for more people to take that route. And perhaps to the southern part of Africa, I'm not sure because actually Chad, southern Africa is quite a long route. It is easier to go up north to the Europe. I anticipate that quite a number will move that, especially if this conflict continues for a while. Especially, presumably, as you said, via Libya to Italy. Yes. In the coming weeks, assuming this conflict persists and grinds on and you know anything can happen, but it, it's not looking good at the moment. There's yet another failed humanitarian ceasefire that happened in the weeks prior to us chatting. Um, are there any particular indicators or trends you'll be looking out towards that will suggest to you what migration patterns might look like going forward emanating from Sudan? The numbers are likely to increase, especially right now, not just because creation of safe pathways. And already that some international organization in conjunction with the CSOs, the community-based organizations, 
on the ground are already creating that. So to allow those individuals like I spoke about who are willing to move but can't move, if they are assisted, there is going to be a surge. Actually, the Horn of Africa, it has always been a top contributor of refugees or internally displaced people on the continent and globally. But I think the numbers will skyrocket if this is not contained on time. I know the AU is working day and night to ensure there is a solution and the IGAD and all the regional organizations are coming on board and member states, the neighboring member states, because the spillover has impact on the neighboring economies. Like right now, it's not just about moving out. Like uh, South Sudan depends on oil from Sudan. Now that has been cut as we speak. There are businesses that have been stalled, you know. So even taking in humanitarian aid has become an issue, you know. So if it continues, more will flow into the neighboring country. And unfortunately, the example you're giving about Chad, we are saying already Chad is lacking 90% of the funding to take care of those refugees that were already in the country, in Chad, before the conflict. Now we have more numbers coming in. What does that even mean? Because there's no way these international organizations will take care of these large numbers of individuals, of the displaced, without funding. And I was looking at the call to take care of all the displaced from Sudan in different countries. And the contributions are only at 16%. Yeah, it's worrying. It's, it's underfunded for sure. I'm wondering, though, in addition to providing the requisite funding to support the humanitarian needs of displaced Sudanese, both internally and across borders, are there any other concrete steps the international community can take to ensure the safer outmigration, specifically, of Sudanese from Sudan to neighboring countries and, and beyond? Yeah, definitely the first one is creating the safe pathways. But this is in the short term. And then we are talking about also decentralization of aid in the sense that the community-based organizations that have already been working in the communities can tell where are the safe pathways and where are the peoples, which families are missing. They can actually be used in the meantime to trace, to track, because the borders are failing because they have worked with these communities for a while prior to displacement. They can actually, in a way, not the best way possible, but to help with the tracking and also to help reach those in need. But most importantly, now, effective border control measures. You know, we can't talk about measures right now if we don't have policies in place. And we cannot go to the table right now and talk about rules and regulations if the conflict is ongoing. So the first stop should be, how do we stop the conflict? Then we can now bring people to the table now talk about, but ad hoc measures at the border, like uh, the security agents can be deployed, but then they need also some kind of training. Why is training important? So they can be able to identify who is a traveler, who is a migrant, who is a refugee, who is some some uh, security agents or, or the, okay, border management security agents are not supposed to be at the border, but because these are the kind of borders where criminals have had a field day, then it's important for them to also be able to know how do we identify now the rebels? How do we identify Janjaweed? How do we identify the traffickers? They need to have that knowledge. So the ad hoc measures maybe work in the meantime, but what we need is long-term integrated border management system is what is required in the long term. 
There's the need to strengthen registration system, border control measures, but that is a long-term shot. Margaret, thank you so much for your time. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <music>